I realize how fortunate I am to be given the opportunity to make an original movie. So I think I knew that like, when that gets gifted to me, you have to grab it with both hands. And if it's something like Last Night in Soho, which may be, you know, I would say, does it feel sort of idiosyncratic in sort of like in comparison to kind of other things out there? Maybe, but if so, good. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and today I'm going to be speaking with filmmaker Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright is one of the most beloved and talented writer-directors that's working today. He's made classics such as Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. His 2017 film Baby Driver was a smash hit, grossing over $225 million. His newest film, Last Night in Soho, is out in theaters right now. And it tells the story of an aspiring fashion designer played by Thomas and McKenzie who starts having vivid visions about the 1960s where she encounters an up-and-coming singer played by Anya Taylor-Joy. As her visions become more upsetting, the two women head towards a reckoning of sorts. I found Last Night in Soho to be visually dazzling, as many of Wright's films are. There's a clear love of the subject matter and the time period, along with a desire to take a long, hard look at the dangers and the perils of nostalgia. More importantly, I continue to be impressed by Wright just in terms of which projects he chooses to make. He's one of the last writer-directors out there, and he's pushing himself in new directions with each film in a way that reminds me a lot of other greats like Danny Boyle and Martin Scorsese. Last Night in Soho is a really enjoyable horror film, a modern spin on the giallo genre. Definitely check it out in theaters if you can do so safely and support original stories like this one. Now, beyond being an amazing filmmaker, Edgar Wright is also an amazing interviewee. He's always very generous with his answers. In our conversations, we talked a little bit about the movie and how he made it, but mostly I asked him to recommend some more horror films people should check out if they like Last Night in Soho. And the way Edgar Wright talks about movies is so beautiful and interesting, I could listen to him discuss it all day. So I really think if you love movies and specifically horror films, you're really going to love our conversation. Before I get to our chat, I want to let you know you can find more episodes of this podcast at culturallyrelevantshow.com, email us at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com, and if you want to support the show, there's many ways to do that. You can follow us on Twitter at crevshow, C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a review for us. It only takes a few seconds. And of course, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Chen. A huge thanks to all my patrons at patreon.com slash Chen for supporting my work. Uh, I specifically want to thank my executive producer patrons, Ian, Scott Walkles, Steve Miller, Sid Yadav, Steve Austin, Dan Flanagan, Jeff Evans, and Mark Warner. Thank you so, so much. Sign up at patreon.com slash Chen to become a patron and get lots of audio exclusives and conversations that I don't post anywhere else. So again, check it out at patreon.com slash Chen. If you're supporting that, you're supporting shows like Culturally Relevant. All right, here is my conversation with Edgar Wright. Stick around for a weekly recommendation and enjoy. Night, I saw something in my dreams. There was a girl. And you are? Sandy. So, Edgar Wright, tell us what inspired you to make this movie. Well, it was a number of things. Um, I guess the sort of the two sort of key things would be you know, an obsession with the decade of the 60s, which was something that I guess started with my parents' record collection because they had a very slim box of records. But um, 
it sort of stopped at the 60s. They didn't, they seemed to stop buying records when my older brother was born. And so I kind of like formulated a perception of the decade just through the records themselves. And then through what I could glean from, you know, reading in books or magazines, not, not an enormous amount of information from my parents um, themselves. And then coming to London, like obviously that deepens again, because then when you're in like Soho, in the centre of London, the shadow of the decade looms really large. And it's always this sense uh, that you've kind of maybe like missed out because I find it interesting that there's something, you know, having nostalgia for a decade that you didn't live in is kind of curious to me. I was born in 1974. So the 60s is before me. And, you know, it would start to make me wonder why I was obsessing about it so much, why I was daydreaming or why I felt like I'd missed out. And I guess, and this speaks to the movie, is the thing where you start to wonder whether is nostalgia an escape or is it a retreat? Are you like retreating from like the modern world and modern life? Is it like a failure to deal with the modern world? And that was something that kind of started to sort of nag at me as an idea. And then that was also coupled with the idea of, of being like a time traveler and going back in time. But, you know, the idea that maybe you could be a cultural time traveler and go to shows and, and uh, see bands and, and uh, see films and be at this club. But that's just trying to have the good without the bad. And so there was this idea of like, started to formulate this idea of, well, what if you went back? But the, the dream of going back to the 60s turned into a nightmare that you couldn't get out of. And then also, furthermore, is like you're not a literal time traveler like Dr. Hill or Martin McFly. You're merely kind of like an observer of something that's already happened. And you then you can do nothing to avert the future. And so that's something that, so all of these kind of like heavy <laughs> nightmarish themes, I guess, preyed on me in the 27 years that I've lived in London and a majority of that spent walking around Zoho. So I guess there was a point where the, the film was haunting me and the only way to exercise it was to make it. You've obviously had opportunities to make sequels to some of your hit films like Shaun of the Dead and Baby Driver. Tell us why it is you refuse to yield to the corporate IP-driven machine that is Hollywood these days. Well, I think the honest answer is, and listen, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'll never say never because, you know, I, I want to reserve the right if I ever do something to not people to point to an interview saying ah liar Edgar Wright you let us down you said you weren't but I think I think the thing is is there's two things is that if you're given the opportunity to make an original movie you've got to take it and I've had that a couple of times recently obviously with Baby Driver and and with this it's like in the in the wake of Baby Driver there was opportunities to do lots of different things including you know a sequel to that or rather doing a sequel to that immediately I knew I wanted to do something different and I just I can't sort of like I realize how fortunate I am to be given the opportunity to make an original movie so I think I knew that like when that gets gifted to me you have to grab it with both hands and if it's something like Last Night in Soho which may be you know I would say, does it feel sort of idiosyncratic in sort of like in comparison to kind of other things out there? Maybe, but if so, good. You know, if there's if there's any sort of tragedy to me about the sort of current state of like, you know, Hollywood in terms of everything being IP driven, is that 
you know, there are some filmmakers out there who I won't mention who you want to sort of save from those movies and see them make something original again. And um, I understand, I understand why um, people go to the safety of making those movies because there is no guarantee that you're going to get an original movie off the ground. And there are so many ways that it could fall apart and you could have wasted years doing so. And, you know, I'm sure if you thought about some of your favorite directors, you wonder what they're doing at the moment. They're probably trying to get movies off the ground and have been doing so for years. So it's like, it's, it's difficult. And um, so with all that said, I just feel incredibly fortunate that I have had the opportunity and I don't take any of it for granted at all. Like to me, having like a film that's like a British psychological thriller set in a specific sort of area of London with all English actors being released day and day in the UK and US, to me, that's already a triumph. <laughs> Indeed. Amen, sir. Amen. So are there any horror movie recommendations you have for people uh, after they see Last Night in Soho? Uh, that might help them to have a deeper understanding of film history. Well, I mean, the, the, the truth is actually is like, I mean, I actually, for the crew on the movie and some of the cast, like um, put together like this kind of hub where we had various sort of reference films. And, but they ran the gamut of like, there were some horror films and psychological thrillers, but there's tons of like dramas from the 60s and also documentaries and, and even just things that related to sort of certain effects in the movie. So the actual like list of stuff was like about 50 films, but it was also, it was like, I, I always wanted it to be like, I have total transparency in terms of um, with the crew and the cast, because you want everybody to be making the same movie, but you also, it is like further reading rather than required reading. I mean, I guess if people like, and these probably, for younger fans who maybe have not seen these films, like, um, I mean, it's interesting to look at Michael Powell's films, for example, so, or Powell and Pressburger. So Peeping Tom would probably be the obvious one in terms of it takes place in a sort of similar milieu to Last Night in Soho, but it's a very different story. Um, and it's a very dark movie. So, but it's interesting. I find it fascinating because on a number of levels, not just what it's about, but there's an other element to it that really like sort of speaks to me is it's shot in like blade. It's a very dark movie, like shot in like blazing technicolor. Or actually maybe it's Eastman color. Don't quote me on that. Somebody at home will be going, it's Eastman color. <laughs> um, maybe Eastman color actually, Peeping Tom. Either way, it's kind of, the, it sort of goes against the grain of what like you used to think of in terms of older movies. Like Psycho is shot in black and white um, and it's kind of an aesthetic choice because he wanted the the film, he felt the film would be more sinister in black and white. He was correct. Peeping Tom made the same year sort of goes the other way, where it's kind of very vivid, woozy colors for a very dark story. And I always find that kind of like sort of um, vivid Eastman color, sort of quite lurid, but seductive at the same time. And that was an interesting thing to me, because in this movie, we wanted it to be full color. And I think in a way like Michael Powell, like, himself my pal and pressburger i think as or one of the directing or filmmaker teams who actually influenced like the later giallo directors like sort of maria bava and dario argento uh can confirm it is eastman color by the way um there we go. 
So uh, any other movies? Uh, do you have one or two more by any chance? Well, I think another interesting one from that time, from the 60s one, is Jack Clayton's The Innocents, um, which is an adaptation of The Turn of the Screw. And um, I'm never quite sure whether, like, how well known this film is, because I always feel like people don't talk about it enough. But it's like, and maybe people don't talk about it as much as they talk about something like the, the Robert Wise's The Haunting. But The Innocents, to me, is, I think, sort of, like, such an influential film in terms of it's always, like... Um, the go-to movie is a sort of as a as a mark of sort of elegance in horror. Like it's directed by Jack Clayton. It's got amazing black and white um, technoscope. I think so. I think it's technoscope. Um, camera work by uh, Freddie Francis, and it's just sort of a, a little masterclass in how to kind of use the frame. Um, and it's probably one of those films that gets better. I think the first time I saw it was probably panned and scanned on TV. And maybe then it's like losing some of its power. So it's one of those films that as as through the different formats over the years, seeing it on DVD and seeing it sort of like some amazing kind of like 4K restoration, it sort of keeps getting better and better. It's such a glorious movie. And also it's so, so quietly scary because it sort of talks about some very dark themes, but because it's made in 1961, so it does so without saying it out loud. And that, in a way, is like sometimes more powerful. Excellent. Can I bother you for one more? Well, let's take one of the Italians then. Like sort of, um, I, I, like Mario Bava, I think, is a, is a director that I, he's, he's lauded by some, but I still don't think he's quite as famous as he should be. Because most people, horror fans, know the name Dario Argento. But it seems like less people talk about Mario Bava, who, you know, preceded him by a couple of decades. And actually, at some points, was like a mentor to Dario Argento. But Mario Bava is a very interesting director because, again, he's a sort of color in such a sort of vibrant way that would seem to be sort of like, um, would seem to be flying in the face of what traditionally you would do in horror, like using kind of like black and white in the shadows, like a chiaroscuro effect to sort of hide hide things in sort of like the Val Luton kind of like sort of style of, of making a horror movie. And then he comes along and does these kind of like sort of really vivid um, color movies and Blood and Black Lace. I've always loved that movie because it seems quite satirical to me because it's a film where like a masked killer is killing uh, six women. I think the Italian title is um, Six Dolls for the Assassin, Six Women for the Killer. Um, I think it's six. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. And uh but the whole way it's kind of shot is like it's a fashion spread. Like it literally looks like you're looking at the pages of a mid-60s edition of Vogue Italia. And I always thought that was really interesting where sort of even things which become sort of like, you know, sort of very sort of disturbing to watch and sort of then when you see like a dead body, it's kind of draped as if it's in like sort of like a fashion spread. And it's I, I think it's actually more satirical than people give it credit for. And it's also just so beautifully ornately made that sort of doesn't seem like it, it's just it's interesting to me to have a horror film like that where like a masked killer is bumping off various people through the movie to be shot in such an elegant and beautiful way. Again, it's sort of it's kind of like completely the opposite of like the sort of more grungy, like 70s kind of like slasher films. Thank you so much for sharing your uh, from your vast movie knowledge with us. It's very much appreciated. Last night in Soho, uh, tell us about what 
your favorite scene to shoot in this movie was or and or the scene you're most proud of? I mean, it's funny, like, sort of, favorite scene to shoot is, it's always a, a weird question because they're never, like, fun to shoot because it's always, like, tricky. But there are some sort of scenes where, you know, like, I guess the sort of the first dream sequence has a lot of, like, different things going on in the same scene. And, and sort of even just in that one scene, it's almost like I'm, like, sort of a microcosm of everything else that's in the movie of, like, lots of different styles of, effects but then lots of things that are actually in camera um and then some things that are just kind of like just simple choreography and execution so you know like there's a dance sequence in the movie where Annie Taylor-Joy and Matt Smith are dancing and then at some point he swaps she swaps bodies into Thomas and Mackenzie and the majority of the shot is all shot for real basically there's one little bit of digital trickery at the very start of it, but then what you're watching is an unbroken take. And I think in this day and age, most people assume that everything is done digitally or that like, oh, it must be a green screen or there must be a stitch and stuff. So it's actually nice to do shots where you are just doing something where you're just kind of keeping the ball in the air and sort of trying not to break the spell by doing these kind of like um, complicated developing shots kind of like a texas switch basically like you you switched them out and people didn't know and uh the, the effect was seamless well i guess in this case you, you do realize that they're switching because they look different right. i mean it, it's sort of it's sort of the same principles as the texas switch but you're you're deliberately swapping between two actresses i mean in a texas switch it's like you know a, a stuntman dressed up as john wayne turning into john wayne you know but here it's actually Annie Taylor-Joy turning into Tom McKenzie. So it's like, it's the same principles of right. the Texas pitch in its choreography and hopefully seamlessness, but to show two different actresses. Did you do the uh, mirrors in camera, by the way? Uh, a lot of it is, yeah. I mean, a lot of the kind of the elongated shots where Annie and Thomason are like next to each other and Thomason is in the reflection. That is how we did it. And, and that was partly because I think we wanted to try and do as much sort of practical magic as possible in camera magic. But on a different level, I was just knew that it would be so much better for Thomas and Mackenzie's performance if she was in the scene with the other actors. Like, I think it wouldn't have, it would have been very difficult and a lot less fun and a lot lonelier for her to kind of shoot her part separately. So we designed these shots where basically with the use of like double sets and like half mirrors that we could kind of put Anya and Thomas in together. So they would feel like they were a duo all the way through. Uh, most challenging scene in the movie to shoot? I mean, the location stuff in the center of London is very tricky um, and very ambitious, but something that we knew was going to be ambitious when we entered into it. It was not like we were under any false pretenses that it would be a breeze. We knew it was going to be the most difficult thing because Soho in London is right in the centre and it's a 24-7 um, area. And, you know, the big city can't really be tamed. So we kind of took the ball by the horns, kind of like shooting those bits. And it, I'm I'm genuinely impressed by what my crew managed to pull off because some of those shots like where Thomas and Mackenzie walks into the street in the 60 for the first time is shot right in the middle of the West end or like the scene where Anya Taylor-Joy and Matt Smith are driving up for a street is shot right in the middle of Soho. 
and you know there's what the frame looks like with all of the 60s kind of like dressing and then immediately outside the frame is the modern world yeah i i think uh the the illusion was pulled off really successfully uh last question for you i've heard tell that quentin tarantino helped to give this movie its name can you tell us about how that happened so how that came about was um i think as far back as 2008 i i mean if i've been thinking about the Maybe if I pitched the idea out loud 10 years ago, I'd been thinking about it and sort of amassing at least the soundtrack to sort of help me kind of like sort of get in the zone for the movie. And um, we were talking about the fact that he'd used Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch's song, Hold Tight in Death Proof. And I really like that song. And he just said, have you ever heard Last Night in Soho? And he played me the song and he said, this is the best end titles music for a film that doesn't exist. And I heard the song and I really liked it. And it went into the same playlist with all the other 60 songs. And then over the years, I was thinking of other titles for the movie and I was thinking about a song title as well. So at one point I thought, well, maybe it should be The Night Has a Thousand Eyes, the Bobby V like single. And then I discovered that on IMDb that there was already a film called The Night Has a Thousand Eyes. So I was like, fuck. So I... And then eventually it was staring me in the face. I was looking at it on the playlist, Last Night in Soho. Last Night in Soho, that's the title of the movie. And I didn't tell Quentin straight away because he was busy making Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then I was a bit, it had been in the trades. It had been sort of revealed in the trades. And so I was worried that he might be angry at me because I'd just taken the title. And so next time I spoke to him on the phone, I said, hey, did you see what I called the title of my new film? He goes, yeah last night in Soho and I said are you are you mad at me he goes no he goes I thought if anybody can make a film with that title it's Edgar and I said well I'm going to thank you at the end of the movie and he said oh well if you thank me you have to thank Alison Anders because she's the one who put me onto the song and she's the one who said this is the best end titles music for a film that doesn't exist so I credited in the thanks list at the end Quentin Tarantino and Alison Anders are both credited and then I hadn't told Alison Anders about this. So I, I don't know very well. I've met her once or twice, but I emailed her and said, hey, this might be a bit out of the blue, but um, I've got this movie called Last Night in Soho. And I named it after the song, which Quentin put me onto and said that you had put him onto this saying it was like the, the greatest like, end theme for a movie that doesn't exist. And she wrote back, she said, oh, that's so amazing. She goes, I'm so like um, flattered and moved that you thanked me that's really sweet and also Quentin is is great to kind of like sort of quote me back and she said what's your address and so I gave him my address in London and then I got through the post a seven inch single from Alison Anders of Last Night in Soho by Dave D. Daisy Beaky McIntyre which is now on my mantelpiece that's so, wonderful wonderful and she's and both of them have seen the movie now as well so that's the other thing and like and, and both had the same response to it which was great so it was just so kind of such a nice kind of full circle. It all comes for a full circle. Edgar Wright, uh, I appreciate that you are out there on the front lines, making telling original stories, writing and directing still. It's wonderful. Uh, thanks for sharing this movie with the world. Thanks for talking with me today. Really appreciate it. Good luck with the movie's release. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks. Nice to see you.
Welcome to Weekly Recommendations, the part of the show each week where I recommend something I've been watching, listening to, reading, etc. I wanted to recommend this week an album I've been listening to. It's called Cello Unlimited by Kian Soltani. If you are a longtime listener and or follower of mine, you may know that a few years ago I put out a cello EP. I'm a huge fan of cello as an instrument. I think it's one of the most beautiful instruments out there. And this guy, Kian Soltani, who is way more talented than me, made an album of cello covers of movie music. This is basically the uh, album I would make if I had, you know, a hundred times more skill than I do and a lot more time and resources. Uh, but Kian Soltani put out this album called Cello Unlimited. It is amazing. It's basically like all of my favorite tracks from movies, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Bourne Identity, and so on played by cello. So it brings out the kind of beauty that you can get with the cello instrument, but it brings it to bear on some of my favorite movie tracks of all time. So it's really amazing. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's streaming on Spotify and Apple Music and stuff like that. Um, so check it out. If you enjoy cello, if you enjoy music, movie music like I do, uh, again, it's Cello Unlimited. It's uh, by Kian Soltani. All right, that's it today for Culturally Relevant. Thanks so much for listening. Again, find more episodes at culturallyrelevantshow.com. Email me at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. This episode was powered by Simplecast. Check out simplecast.com for a great podcast management and analytic solution. And this episode was edited and produced by me, David Chen. We will see you next week for another episode of Culturally Relevant.